How about now? Okay, good. It's great to be with you. Um, I didn't expect to be here, actually. I was sitting in a wedding reception last uh, Sunday afternoon. Our granddaughter in London got married, actually up in Elmira. But, um, and then all of a sudden I got a text from Darren saying, uh, what about the possibility of speaking at Truth next Sunday? And I said, great, that'll be really, really good. And, and then all of a sudden I got thinking like, next week is like the busiest week in my life. Pastor Steve and I were just talking this morning about the last week. So our, our week started off with that wedding. And then we found out on the, and I do a Bible study on uh, Monday evenings, which we're finishing up our study on the book of Acts. And uh, you want to pray for me, you can pray for it tomorrow because I'm, everybody, of course, wants to know about the work of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And we've worked our way all through Acts, but I'm going back with these major themes, and so I've got to come up with a theology of the Spirit in the book of Acts, and I'm about halfway there. So I've got this evening and tomorrow to get that together, so that we'll be okay on that. So last week it was looking at similarities of Paul with Christ, because that's a major thing in the book of Acts. And probably anybody in their right mind would have said, I'm doing so much study in Acts, I should pre preach on Acts on Sunday morning. Why not? And I thought, no. It's, we're not in the same sequence at this point in time. You're not studying Acts like the group that I'm dealing with, which is mostly Chinese and Russian, by the way, on Monday night. So we're, we're happy with that. A, we let a couple of Canadians and Americans in, but for the most part, for the most part it's uh, international. So anyhow, then we found out that one of our good friend's father died, one of our neighbors back in Ingersoll, and so we need to go to... The funeral took pretty much most of Wednesday, and then Thursday we had Amanda and, uh, and Emily over. We spend time together with them each week, having a lot of fun. They're learning how to bake Canadian things. So Marguerite's uh, running a little baking class on Thursday afternoons, and I'm, I'm running a little tasting class on <laughs> Thursday. And, you know, I'm, I think I got the better deal. And um, then on Friday, I had a had to go to a birthday party for a 90-year-old woman. Now, this 90-year-old woman, one day when I was pastoring in Niagara Falls, somehow ends up knocking kind of on the door of the church, and she'd been away from the Lord a long time, and we just started chit-chatting, and she came back to the Lord. I buried her first husband. I buried her second husband. I buried the first husband's, uh, her, no, the second husband's wife. Uh, she's in the queue. Um, <laughs> So it's one of the things I've promised to do. If I'm still alive, I have to do her funeral. So we had to go to the 90th birthday, of course. And then we had a wedding last evening in Ancaster. So it's been a crazy, crazy week. And that just brings me to a text that uh, when we were praying this morning before the service, we were thinking about Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. They that wait upon the Lord. They're going to renew their strength. They're going to mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not get weary. They, uh, they will walk and not faint. I mean, and uh, so that's where we are this morning. It's by the grace of God that we're here. And I always love being at Truth because the name Truth is a good name. Initially, it took me a while to get used to it. I thought like, hmm, thinking about Truth, what are we trying to say about other churches? But then... Uh, <laughs> You know, we're the truth, you know, like in case, in case you don't. But, but in reality, we're a church that loves truth. And, uh, and so we want to share truth this morning. 
Anyhow, as I share truth today, I, want to, I think those of you who know me, and some of you know me from different places, one of the things I love is the Old Testament. I've just loved the Old Testament ever since I was a kid. I just love the stories in the Old Testament. I mean, David, Daniel, Joseph, uh, Esther, Ruth. I mean, they're, they're just incredible characters. And, and for some reason, I've just always liked stories. In fact, I, I can attribute that to an aunt of mine who made a deal with me when I was a little kid. And the deal was this. If she bought me a book, if I could read it to her the next week, then I'd get another book. So my Aunt Madge is responsible for me being a, a book reader. And uh, we'd read, you know, those golden books, if anybody can remember such things. You'd get a golden book. I'd learn the book. I'd read it to her on Saturday. We'd walk down to the store and get uh, the next week's version. And, you know, that, that was a great thing for me. So I, I just learned to love stories. I, you know, I grew up with the Hardy Boys and all of that kind of stuff, you know. But... That's old stuff. People who look at me, Hardy Boys, who are they? Like, you know? <laughs> well, they're like the Bobsy Twins. Anybody remember them either? I, I didn't. I was so desperate one summer. We were on a farm up in Windsor, New York. I got so desperate, I started reading Grace Livingston Hill. Anybody know that stuff? Oh, my goodness. You got to be desperate to read. To, uh, to read. If, you're, if you're a young man, reading Grace Livingston Hill, let's just say, is a challenge. It was like one gazebo, one guy, one girl, one kiss, same deal. I mean, that was the whole strategy of the book. You know, and that one kiss just sent everything in, in a new direction. But I, I loved biblical stories, and I loved the Old Testament. And, and um, you know what? One of the great stories in the Old Testament, of course, is the story of the Exodus. And I love that story, too. It's not just about going through the Red Sea on, on dry ground. It, it, it's about God, an incredible God, who rescues a minuscule nation out of a mighty nation, takes them through a desert to the edge of the promised land. They come to the plains of Moab. They look into the promised land. God has led them every step of the way. I love that story because... It's a picture of your story if you're a believer. It's a picture of my story, how God rescued me out of sin. How God leads me through life and is taking me to the promised land. We're on our way to heaven, folks. You know, and it's something that the church is forgetting these days. This world isn't our home. We're simply passing through. We're on our way to heaven. We need to have heavenly values. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father. We need to get this kind of thinking in our minds. Unfortunately, not many Christians have been able to make that transition. So you're going to be surprised when I say to you this morning, I want to speak to you from the book of Judges. And you think like, it's kind of like the question, remember Nathaniel's question? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, so it's kind of like that question, can anything good come out of the book of Judges? Is there anything possibly that we could say from the book of Judges that would be of spiritual value? There is so much evil there. There's so much sin there. You know what? Here's something you might want to think about you will hear very often. There's more teaching about the Spirit of God in the book of Judges than in almost any other book in the Old Testament. 
When's the last time you heard that? Well, you heard it now. (laughs) I love the story. I guess one of the reasons I I like the book of Judges, I like the stories. Where do you get a story like a left-handed Benjamite decides to make himself an 18-inch Lord's, uh, an 18-inch long stiletto, walks in and meets with a very fat king by the name of Eglon and says, I have a present from God for you. The dagger goes in and everybody's trying to figure out what happened because the dagger's inside this really fat guy. Nobody knows what happened. I personally find that kind of comical in some ways. You know? And then, of course, you have this story about a woman. You remember that the... the uh, the Canaanites are really giving Israel a hard time. And uh, Deborah is judging Israel at that time. Barak should have been, but he's chickening out on what he should be doing. And, and as a result of that, he's not going to get the glory for the battle. A woman's going to her. And, and you remember her name is J.L. The general of the Canaanite army is running for his life because Israel is winning. He comes to J.L.'s house. J.L. says, oh, how are you doing? He says, I'm running for my life or something like that. She says, why don't you just come in here? You can sneak under the carpet in the living room. I'll, I'll kind of cover you over. And then she goes and gets him the most lethal thing you can do, a warm glass of milk. He drinks the milk. Next thing you know, he's nodded off. And the next thing you know is she's driving a, pen, a tent peg through his head. What an interesting story. And I'm not done yet. I mean, there are so many good stories. What, what about the story of, uh, for example, Gideon with 300 people fighting an army of 32,000 with no weapons? Amazing. Just, just amazing. Or what about the story of Samson? I mean, I almost got fired from my ministry at Philpot Church uh, when I was there because I called Samson a womanizer. And some woman came up to me after the service and said, you know what, you, you're terrible to say that. I said, okay, I'll take it back publicly if you can show me any woman in the text other than his mother that he didn't try to sleep with. That was the end of that conversation. I mean, he's such a disappointment. Can you imagine? God told Samson's father, Manoah, and his mother, whose name we don't know, that he was going to be a great deliverer. He was going to be, if you will, a Nazarite from birth. He was going to be God's man, God's rescuer. And one event after another, destruction, 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 until finally he's standing in the temple of Dagon. His hair has grown back. He asked the servant boy who's with him, can you just kind of put my hands on the uh, supporting posts of this temple of Dagon? And with one mighty thrust, as you know, he breaks those pillars loose from their moorings and more Philistines are killed in his death than in his life. Superhero stories. I mean, Spider-Man's got nothing on this, right? I mean, he doesn't. Isn't that a great picture of Samson? I wish I looked like that. In heaven, maybe. You know, in your dreams, Marguerite would say, or something like that. But any, anyhow. There's something else about this book of Judges. 
The structure of this book is incredible. If, if somebody were to ask you, what book in the Old Testament is the best written book? A lot of people would say Isaiah. Some people would say Genesis. A lot of people would say the book of Judges. It is such a well-balanced, well-structured book. I mean, it, it starts off with two introductions. We're going to look at those this morning. It then moves into six cycles. In the middle of those six cycles, there is a story about a man by the name of Abimelech. He's what a king will look like, and it's not very good. And then it will finish with two stories. Those stories are so incredible. The first story, most people don't even realize, there is a Levite who goes north in Israel to be the priest for the tribe of Dan, to be a priest for an idol. Do you know who that priest is? It's Moses' grandson. Can you imagine that? Moses' grandson serving an idol. That's how fast Israel went down the tubes. That's how fast they turned away from God and got into things they, they never should have been in. Well, what I want us to do today is I want us to focus on the first couple of chapters of uh, the book of Judges. So if you have a Bible handy, uh, it will be helpful. If you read the first chapter of the book of Judges, what you're, you're going to find is that, well, if you're a Bible reader, you know, if you're reading the Bible every day and maybe you're reading your way through the Bible every year and you begin at Genesis and try to get through Revelation, you run into a couple of rough spots like Leviticus and First, First Chronicles and stuff like that. But if you've got some discipline, you can, you can actually get through that. But as, as you're going along, all of a sudden you start reading in the beginning of the book of Judges. You say, wait a second. I've heard this before. This material is not new material, and in fact, it isn't new material. What you're getting is the retelling of the story of Joshua in, in the first two verses, in the first two chapters of the book of Judges. So you're going along saying, hmm, yeah, heard that story, heard that story, heard that story. Right, it, you have heard that story. Now remember, what it's speaking about is, is this whole matter of Israel going in to take the promised land, you see. And, and that's going to be very interesting. I just need to make sure where I'm at here with regard to my PowerPoints. I'm sorry I'm messing you up. Okay, good. So I want to read, uh, I want you to know that God said to, to Israel, okay, you're to go in and you're to, you are to take over the promised land. So we read in, next slide is uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's not only in Deuteronomy that God tells Israel this stuff. It is, it is also in Exodus that God tells us, when you get to the promised land, I'm, I'm just going to uh, paraphrase what's up there. When you get to the promised land, what you're going to find is that there are going to be seven nations in that land those seven nations, every one of those seven nations is more mighty, more powerful than you are. Okay? Now think about that. 
every nation more powerful, more strong than you are. But you need to remember a couple of things. And the first thing you need to remember is, is this. First of all, the Lord, your God, will fight for you. It says here, when the, when the Lord will deliver them into your hands. Back in Exodus chapter 14, Moses said to Israel, the Lord, your God, will fight for you. In Deuteronomy, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, or actually Exodus chapter 15, what you'll find is the children of Israel singing after they've passed through the Red Sea that the Lord is a mighty warrior. And we need to remember that. God is a mighty warrior. You are never in trouble where God can't protect you. There is nobody. You know, I mean, John spells that out clearly in the Gospel of John, right? He says, my father is greater than I. And nobody, but nobody is going to pluck you out of my father's hands. We're safe in God. We're covered in God. When God is on our side... We're in great shape. Well, these people have two promises going for them. First of all, they have God's promise. They are going to win this battle. And secondly, they're going to have God's presence. That God is with them. Actually, that's what God's name means. I am. I'm here. I am. I am with you. See? Yahweh. What an incredible name. Every time you say, I wonder where God is. He says, here. I'm right here. I don't have to worry. He's right here. I don't need to fear the future. He's right there. I don't have to worry about the past. He took care of me. He's always looking after us. But now, the children of Israel, as, as an army, you see, they're God's army, they're going to bring punishment to the Canaanites. That's their role. The time of Canaanite unrighteousness is filled up. And God is going to do something about that. You remember you said to Abraham, you're going to have this land, but it's not going to be for a while. You have to wait for the Canaanites to fill up their sinfulness and then. And so God has sent his army, send his army into that land to wreak havoc if, you, havoc, if you will, on the Canaanites, but also to give that land to his people. That's the promise they have. They have God's presence. They have God's promise. But now let's read the text. I'm just going to read for you from Judges chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, heaven was given to Caleb, who drove from it three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And when they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Show us how to get into the city, and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them, and they put the city to the sword, but spared the man and his whole family. 
He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is its name to this day. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan or Tanakh or Dor um, or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements for the Canaanites were determined to live in the land. And when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but they never drove them out completely. Have you noticed what's happening in this text? Is that the writer of Judges is going down through all of the Israelite tribes. Every Israelite tribe is to get its piece of property the 12 tribes of Israel. Then there are cities of refuge that are given to the Levites and other property that's given to the Levites within those tribal areas. But every tribe is to get its property and here's what happened. They are to fight for it. Deuteronomy 7 says that when you go into the land, you are to do several things. You are to destroy the Canaanites. You don't make any treaties with these people. They, you, don't, you don't marry your sons to their daughters. You don't marry, uh, you don't allow your sons or to marry their daughters. You do, none of that, okay? You go in, you break down their idols. You destroy the high places. In fact, you have a responsibility to eliminate them. And you might ask why? And the answer to that question is, if you don't eliminate a Canaanite, what ultimately happens is the Canaanite is going to infect you. That Canaanite is going to corrupt you. He's going to corrupt you morally. He's going to corrupt you spiritually. He's going to corrupt you socially. And you say, "Mm, how are you really sure about that? You bet I am. Because I want to tell you that back in Numbers 22, 23, and 24, when Balak hires Balaam to curse the Israelites. Remember, the Israelites are at the plains of Moab. They're ready to go into the promised land. And and Balak becomes absolutely afraid of what's going to take place. He hires this prophet Balaam to come and to curse the Israelites. Four times, four times, Balaam tries to curse Israel. And But what's he say? How can I curse what God hasn't cursed? How can I do that? God doesn't change his mind. God is not a man or the son of man that he should repent. Story after story about, I can't do that. I can't do that. But you know what happens? Once you get to chapter 25 and 26, Balaam says to King Balak, listen, you may not be able to beat them in battle, but send some Moabite women in. You can corrupt them. That's why God says kill all those Canaanites. They, you either kill them or they are going to kill you. Now think about that. And as you're thinking about this, this isn't just about battle. This is a lesson for us. It's a, that we have to kill the Canaanites in our life. If, if, in fact, we're going to live good and godly lives, you have to, well, Paul puts it this way, right? Mortify the deeds of the flesh. Put to death the old man. Kill 
that old man. Weckon yourselves dead unto sin, but alive unto Christ. You see, there's a lesson here for us. If you don't kill the Canaanites in your life, if you don't defeat these sin issues in your life, they are going to defeat you. That's what's going to happen. You say, what's a Canaanite like? Greed, lust, envy. You can just go right down a list of all sorts of things that trouble us. That's what a Canaanite looks like in our lives. We need to kill those things if we're going to have a successful spiritual life with God. So that's the first lesson you learn here. Kill the Canaanites. Not literally, but... And by the way, don't forget. Don't forget what Darren read earlier, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. We don't take the advice of wicked people on how to live life. We don't spend time with wicked people trying to learn how to live a godly life. And we don't act like ungodly people and try to live spiritual life at the same time. That's what Psalm 1 is talking about. And when we live like that, we are like trees planted by streams of living water. So that's our first lesson. Give it to the Canaanites. Now there's a second lesson that comes up in this text as you go down to chapter 2 and verse 6. It says this. Now after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take up possession in the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all of the great things that God had done. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnah, Harris. After that, the whole generation... After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How did that happen? How does that happen? I can tell you how it happens. You might remember in your own life when you came to the Lord, it was a radical change from being against God or not even knowing anything about God and God became a reality in your life and everything changed, but all of a sudden that became comfortable. It's like the children of Israel. They're going into the promised land and they're told time after time after time, it's a land flowing with milk and honey and all of a sudden they get, they get used to eating milk and honey and it's kind of like this is the good life. We're just going to eat milk and honey and the more milk and honey they ate, the more they forgot what their life was like before. They didn't tell their children about it. I didn't tell anybody about it. It was just kind of like the milk and the honey's good. 
That's where we're getting in so much TV nonsense today about Christianity. There's milk and honey out there. Prosperity. You can have it all. You can live like God. You can only believe this nonsense if you live in Canada or the U.S. or someplace like that. You couldn't possibly believe it if you lived in the middle of Kazakhstan or Africa or somewhere. It's a lie from the devil. They did not know the Lord. They didn't know what he had done. How can that happen? Well, I'll tell you two ways it can happen. First thing is, that generation, that older generation, evidently didn't take their children on a tour through Israel. They should have. Because if you remember the story of, of Joshua, the children of Israel come to the promised land. As they come to the promised land, they, they have to cross the Jordan River. As they cross the Jordan River, remember, the Jordan is in flood stage. As soon as the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant step into the river, the water starts, stops. What a reminder of what God had done at the Red Sea, right? You're going to walk through on dry ground. Israel walks through on dry ground. As soon as they get to the other side, they build an altar with 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel to remind them God brought us through on dry ground. And then they move from there as they're doing this little trip with their children saying, oh, yeah, we did, we did the Jordan thing. Now let's go to Jericho. Man, there was a huge pile of rocks. And the amazing thing about these rocks is the rocks fell out. They didn't fall in. You remember the story of how the children of Israel for six days march around the city, blow their trumpets a bit. On the seventh day, they march around seven times. They blow their trumpets. The walls fall down. It's God's victory. It is God's battle. There's rocks everywhere. You see those rocks? That's where God destroyed the city of Jericho. Then you go to another little pile of rocks because everything in Jericho belonged to God. It was what we call korban. It was a, it was a gift of God. It was a sacred thing, but Achan saw some really good stuff, some Babylonian garments and, and whatever, and he decides, you know, I don't think God needs all that stuff. I'm going to take a little of it home myself, buries it in his tent. You remember the story of how he's discovered, and there's a pile of rocks over him and his family. And then you go a little further, and you get to Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, the children of Israel build altars to the Lord, and there they read... Deuteronomy, actually, probably 20, chapters 27, 28, 29. They read the blessings and the cursings back and forth. This great antiphonal chorus taking place. It's, it's an incredible story. Rocks. Then you go a little further to a place called Makeda. And there, there's a cave in Makeda. And over the, over the face of that cave is a rock pile because inside that cave are five leaders, five kings are inside that cave cave. Every one of them defeated by God. And I'm not done with rock piles yet. There's a lot of rock piles in the book of Judges and the book of Joshua. Question is, what about you? Oh, and they evidently didn't tell the other story. The story about how before they came into the promised land, 
this happened. Now remember, it's the second generation in the wilderness. So they didn't go through the Red Sea. They're, they're out in the desert. But they remember what happened to their parents. Their parents refused to obey God. And because they refused to obey God, they're not, none of them is going to get into the promised land other than Joshua and Caleb. 87 people die every day for 38 years. What an exciting thought. You can do 30, 37 funerals a day. Yeah. Right. That's what happens. Death, death, death. But not just that. A pillar of cloud by day to protect them from the sun. Pillar of fire by night to lead them through the wilderness, food, water, direction, protection, and on and on the story goes as to how God brought those children of Israel into the promised land and how he defeated those seven nations that were more mighty and more powerful. What an incredible story. Let me ask you a question. Got any stone piles in your life? Got any stone piles in your life? Can you go back through your own personal history and, and, and see something God has done? I can tell you, right in my life for sure, I know some. I can remember... I probably was 21, 22 years old at the time. We had a summer farm in Windsor, New York. Sage Creek ran along one side of that farm. I was up on a bluff overlooking Sage Creek, just reading my Bible, when God said to me, Lou, you're mine. I had a position at that point. I was school business manager for a fairly large school system. How I got the job is crazy. We wouldn't even go there. You're mine. I can tell you 20 years after that, one day in my life when God tested me way beyond anything I thought I would ever be able to stand. And I stood in my entryway of my house in Dundas, Ontario at that time and I said to God, I guess we're going to find out what I really believe, aren't we? Okay. Rock piles. Rock piles. Rock piles. Rock piles that we need to share with our children. Rock piles that need to be so clear in our minds that when the devil comes and says, you, you think God could use you? I can go back and say, I'm not sure how, but I know on one day he said, you're mine. I know I faced a lot of things in my life and I never thought I could stand one a huge crisis issue. We're going to find out. And God's faithful. We need rock piles in our lives. We need to kill Canaanites. We need to build rock piles. And here's the crazy thing. These people were so busy 
so busy eating and drinking milk and honey that they didn't realize that their spiritual lives were going downhill. That's what happened. They, they were on a spiritual plane. They were in the promised land. They had their property. They had everything that God promised, and, and they relaxed, and all of a sudden, well, you know what happens when you relax in your spiritual life. First, it's a little sin. Then it's a little more sin. Then it gets to be a little more sin. You kind of get to the place where you don't even know it's sin. Now you're on a slippery slope. That's what happened. And the story of the book of Judges, for the rest of the, for the next six episodes, is this story. The story is that Israel is safe. They're enjoying life, but God's not important to them. God sends an enemy. Israel cries out to God for deliverance. God sends a deliverer. This is an incredible story, right? As soon as they're delivered for a little while, they serve God. And then it's back to the honey and the milk and the good stuff. And the cycle starts again. Now that cycle isn't just Israel's cycle. You probably have lived that cycle in your own life. The question is, how do you get out of that? How do you stop being, what should we say, overcome by this cycle? So I just want to remind you of a few things this morning. First of all, remember the rock piles. Remember what God has done. And don't just remember them. Explain those things to your children. Show them that your life is not some hypocritical kind of just going to church and looking good on Sunday, but that you're there because there was a moment in time when you know you were rescued, when you know you were called out, when you know God did something dramatic in your life. You need to share that with your kids, with your family, with your friends. Secondly, Kill the Canaanites. You start looking at your life and you look at those, what they used to call besetting sins. Those things that have grabbed onto your life. Those things that maybe it's language, maybe it's your thought life, maybe it's your finances. I, I don't know what it is. You know, God knows that and you know that. And God wants you to put that thing to death because if you don't it strangles you in your spiritual life follow God's instruction see 
Well, as they follow God's instruction, remember, the Israelites were doing good. They, they were taking over the land, but they never finished the job. They followed God just so far, and then they stopped. They did not. 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 And as a result of did not, the Canaanites corrupt them. Follow God's instructions. Let's pray together. Father, you know today where we're at in our lives. You know the things that are sapping our spiritual strength. You know the Canaanites that are in us, corrupting us, seeking to destroy our spiritual lives. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would reveal to us what those things are and give us the courage and strength and power to put to death those Canaanites. We thank you for verses like Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, where there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. We pray for that in our lives today. We pray, Father, that you would help us to go back to our spiritual history and see where every step of the way you have been leading us, you have been guiding us, you have been protecting us, you have been supporting us. You are the ever-present God. Keep us aware of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.